following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. As we get started today in the uh, in the Word of God, I'd like to ask you to think about your past. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to give you any more direction. And the reason I'm not going to give you any more direction is because I want you to be able to kind of answer for yourself the following question. Generally speaking, when you think about your past, is that on balance a positive response that comes up for you? Or is it a negative response that comes up for you? Many of us would like to return to the past, and many of us would like to forget that the past ever happened. Most of us have a a blend of both of those things. But I know that for some of you, any mention of the past instantly locks your attention onto a singular defining event in your life. And this event, because it was a moment of incredible joy or because it was a tragedy of such depth or an experience of pain that was so profound, have this singular event that captivates your whole whole mind. It's as if there's this one thing that for you is the sun and all the planets of your existence spin around it every day. One thing that I was thinking about is that that reality may actually be true not just for certain individuals, but sometimes whole families have such an event in their past. I wonder if anybody in the room has an experience like that. I wouldn't ask you to share it, but where there's a there's a a single event in your family's past and it's not just you that it affected, it was everybody in the family and as a result, that's the sun for all of you. Now, that kind of collective consciousness, that social memory, if you will, is uh, very present for the people of Israel in the writings of the Bible. Now, remember, God uh, had promised through Abraham to make this family great, this nation great. Now, in in the ancient Near East and in the Hebrew language, the words for family and tribe and nation all kind of blend together. Uh, You can, if you think about how these groups developed, you can imagine why that would be so. Uh, But Abraham was promised in your family... And through your family, all the other families of the earth, all the other nations of the earth will be blessed. And so for the people of Israel, centuries after Abraham, their defining family event, their historical son around which all of the uh, other events of their shared history spin, was the exodus from Egypt. Uh, That story of God's deliverance of his people from slavery and of their wandering in the wilderness for the 40 years and of their migration into the land of promise was the great collective memory at the center of their existence. And if you read the Hebrew Bible, you can see this center in their songs of worship. You can see it in the various histories in the Old Testament 
the judges and the kings. You can see it in their stories of conquest and exile. You can see it in the writings of their prophets. And in the New Testament, you can see it in the teachings of Jesus, who after all was a Jewish teacher. You can see it as a theological underpinning or foundation for the entire early Christian church. As a matter of fact, I, I'm of the opinion that the Exodus story is such a, a huge sun with such a big gravitational force that if you don't see it in these other places in the Bible, you're probably missing something. You probably are not reading the Bible as well as you could. Now, you know I would never say something like that to shame you or to scold you. <laughs> but perhaps it does inspire you to go back to the Bible and look at it in a, a, with this light. Uh, think of it in this way. I hope that maybe it inspires you to go a little bit deeper in your understanding of our sacred scriptures. And so what I'd like to do uh, this morning is to look together at a few different types of biblical writings and uh, spend some time imagining the effect of that historical memory on these writings and on so how, how the past was influencing the present of, of the day that they were written. And my hope is that in doing that, we will begin to formulate a framework for how to understand our own past, particularly as it affects our quest for God and our understanding of who God is. So we're going to look at three of the passages that are assigned by the Revised Common Lectionary for this fifth Sunday in Lent. And that's what we'll do. And I want to begin uh, with the psalm for the week, which I read at the call to worship, and you may have been here for that. Um, If you'd like to follow along, I have the page numbers on the screen here for these red Bibles, and you're welcome to open them up and, and read along with me. I'm going to read this brief psalm. And as I do, I'd like to ask you to listen for the verbs. Why the verbs? Well, because the verbs give some indication of tense, right? They, they tell when something happened, right? And listen for other words. They, maybe they're like pronouns or antecedents or something. I don't know. Grammar nerds probably could help us out here. Other words that maybe aren't verbs, but still give some indication of a sense of time, right? When something happened in, in the past. All right, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. So on balance, having listened to Psalm 126, would you say that the psalm speaks more positively of the past or more negatively of the past? Which is it? You're a quiet group. Does this psalm speak more positively about the past? I'm getting a thumbs up from somebody. That's, about, <laughs> that's the artisan woo of answering this question right now. <laughs> this psalm s- s- seems to like the past, right? 
remember the past glory. It's like a, like a Hebrew poetic version of Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Back in 82, I used to be able to throw the pigskin a quarter mile. If the coach had just put me in in the fourth quarter, we would have won the state championship. Right? <clears throat> Even, even a sense of longing for how it was. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. And how are they praying that God would restore their fortunes? Like water courses in the Negev. Do you know what the Negev is? It's a desert. Negev actually means dry place. <laughs> what would it mean for the people of Israel to ask God to restore their fortunes like water in the desert, what would that evoke for them? The exodus. Wandering in the wilderness with nothing to drink and they get water out of a a dry, dusty rock. Keep that image in your mind, by the way, water in the desert. Because it it may come up uh, in the next text. Spoiler alert. Before we get to that, I want to draw your attention to what happens at the very end of this psalm. What happens to the verb tenses at the end of the psalm? Doesn't it shift from the past to the future and essentially ask God to draw a line between the two? That restore our fortunes business is kind of a hinge because in the end of the psalm, the psalmist writes, May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. This is a, a, a prayer for something that would happen in the future. Those who go out weeping shall come home. In some future time, shall come home with shouts of joy. Let's look at the, uh, the next text, which is from Isaiah 43. Verses 16 through 21. And once again, as I read it, I would like to encourage you to look for those words that indicate something from the past and particularly what kind of view is taken of the past in the people's kind of collective consciousness, their social memory. Okay, Isaiah 43, 16 through 21. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. Same question. Maybe the answer is a little different. On balance, does this text from Isaiah think more positively about the past or more negatively about the past? This one's not quite as clear, is it? There's certainly some... uh, some fondness for the way God has worked in the past, right? The Lord making a way in the sea and chariots and horses being extinguished, quenched like a wick. By the way, what story does this evoke for the people of Israel? What immediately comes to mind when he uses this type of imagery? The Exodus. 
what happened as the people were fleeing from Egypt with Pharaoh's chariots and horses chasing them. God made a way through the Red Sea. And then as the, after the Israelites passed through, as the Egyptians in pursuit tried to follow them, the waters crashed in on those chariots and horses and extinguished them like a wick. So there's this positive view of God's work in the people's past, but look at verse 18 and what happens there. This is the hinge verse in this passage. He says, Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. Why not? Verse 19 has the answer. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And what is this new thing that God is going to do? He's going to make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Wait a second. Isn't that the old thing? Why is he saying, don't think about the old thing. I'm going to do a new thing. It's going to be the old thing. (laughs) What sense can we make of that? Um, That's your uh, question to ponder as you fall asleep tonight. Is the new thing some kind of reformation of the old thing? I don't know. <laughs> I notice that we really like to quote one of these verses, especially those of us in the Christian church like to quote the verse about, I'm about to do a new thing. We like new things. And our Christian interpretation is, of course, that the new thing is what God wants to do for the world through His Son, Jesus. But I think it's important to us to remember what comes right before that promise because you cannot embrace the promise of a new thing until you do the hard work of uh, verse 18-ing your life. (laughs) Right? You can't say, I'm excited for the new thing if you are dwelling on the old thing. And perhaps to put it a little bit more charitably to those of us who have had experiences in our past that dog us, it's hard to embrace that new thing when the old thing won't let go of us. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. Sometimes we long so desperately for something new, but we can't have it as long as we are clinging to the past or as long as the past is still clinging to us. So far, we've had Psalm 126, which makes a very subtle and poetic move from the past to the future. And we've had Isaiah 43, which uh, makes that move from the past to the future even more obvious. Now, I want to try to take these beautiful ancient Hebrew scriptures and bring them forward into our Christian context a little bit and turn into the New Testament for the third reading today, which is from Philippians chapter 3. If you look ahead to 954 in your red Bibles, you will find this this text if you'd like to follow along. Actually, I'm going to start at the very, very bottom of the page, about halfway through verse 4. Now, this passage, I think, has a similar structure to the passage from Isaiah, the second one that we read. And I want you to see if you can spot that same movement. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christian church in Philippi, says this, If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. 
And here he's going to lay out his Jewish credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, which is to say an expert, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. So we had that subtle poetry, and then that gentle promise, and then we have the Apostle Paul saying, I regard everything as loss and rubbish. (laughs) Uh, See, um, the Apostle Paul has many things, but uh, subtle is not one of them, (laughs) and gentle is not one of them. Um, Sometimes can be hard for us to, to read his writings, as a matter of fact, but in this case, it's great because what he is talking about is good news. It is the good news, if you will. Why is it that he so um, poignantly (laughs) discards his past, regarding it as loss and rubbish? Well, it's right there in verses 8 and 9. The reason that he does this is in order that I may gain Christ and in order that I may be found in him. What does it mean to gain Christ and be found in him? Well, it means, yes, as Paul seems to indicate, that you may share in a certain amount of his suffering. But the suffering of Jesus is actually good news. This is why we call it Good Friday when we observe the occasion of his death. Because the suffering is what leads to resurrection. Jesus himself taught, you can see in in the Gospel of John, he says that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit. The new thing that God promises to do, that can be done in us. It can be done in you. But you have to remember that you cannot experience the new things God wants to do if you are dwelling in the past. So, as the prophet Isaiah says, do not remember the former things or even consider the things of old. Don't even think about them. As Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 
Now, surely there are people in the room who uh, feel so crushed by the experiences of their past, perhaps some shame in their past. There are surely people in the room who would say that their past is very much like a desert. And actually, if you want to know, I don't remember any miraculous water coming out of the rocks. On the other hand, there are surely people in the room who have uh, much to celebrate in their past, who have a lot to be proud of, who, who really resonate with those verb tenses in Psalm 126 saying, we were, we were, I was, I was. Back in 82, I used to be able to throw the pigskin a quarter mile, <laughs> spiritually speaking. <laughs> Maybe you have these shouts of joy in your past, and as sort of subtly hinted in the psalm, that has not been your experience recently, and you would pray to God, restore my fortunes like water in the desert. Whatever way you would classify yourself and your own understanding of your past, spiritually or otherwise, the great leveling movement of Christianity tells all of us Let the past die and move forward. Christ is all that matters because Christ is the seed that falls to the earth and dies and generates a harvest. Christ is our model. Christ is our goal. Christ is both the end and the means because Christ is the power of resurrection. And by the way, we press on to make it our own because Christ Jesus has made us His own. So if you don't like it, it's too bad. Because <laughs> He already did it. <laughs> He's already made you His own. And that is how you can press on. I recognize it is not as simple as just saying, I'm going to forget the past. Well, look at that. I forgot to switch the light off on that past event. It's not as easy as doing that, is it? which is why you have to press on and press on and press on toward the goal. And it's a, it's a renewal of effort and activity every day. And so, as a closing exercise, I would like to lead us in a little journey of prayer shaped by four model prayers, which I'm going to ask you to look at on the screen and uh, then sort of make your own as best you can. And it's going to take us through four statements from these readings today. And as many people are as in the room, that's how many different pasts we have to try to let die and move forward from. And so I want to give you a chance to, uh, to kind of express and own whatever you need to do this morning. And so let's put the first part of this prayer on the screen. How many of you would like to pray this? Make a way in the wilderness or put a river in my desert. If you have something you'd like to beg of God with this as a model, take a moment of silence and do that now.
the next part of the prayer is do a new thing. You might say, help me to forget what lies behind. What new thing would you like to ask God to do in your life? The third part of the prayer is probably the most difficult one. It's to say to God, I regard it all as rubbish. Maybe it's really great and you don't want to think of it as rubbish. Can you regard all of it as loss and rubbish, the good and the bad and everything in between, so that you can gain Christ and be found in him? Make that part of the prayer your own now. And the last part of the prayer is let me be found in Christ, not my past. There is a certain fear that arises when we think about redefining ourselves and when we think about taking on a new identity. But that's what we are called to do when we are called to follow Jesus, is to leave behind the things that came before, to look for something new, and to find ourselves and our identity first and foremost in Christ, not in our past. So make this prayer your own, however you can. Just as the Israelites have a, had, had a shared moment in their social memory of the Exodus, we Christians have a, a sacrament of remembrance of the central moment in our faith, which is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And we remember both when we take communion together. He says, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. That's part of the whole thing. And so, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come and take communion and and receive the bread representing his body and the drink, the, the wine or the juice representing his blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to do that as an act of remembrance. But it's an act of communal remembrance. That's why we call it communion. It's our shared story that we proclaim when we take communion together. We tell the story of Jesus.
when we receive his body and blood. And of course, this is the, the moment that, that is our hinge. This is the thing that takes us from whatever was in our past to whatever God has for us in our future. And so I'd like to invite you now, all of you who are seeking to find a new future in Jesus, whether you're a member of a church or not, whether you've never done this before or it's been years or whatever it might be, to come to the table and receive his body and blood, remembering his sacrifice, receiving food for your souls, and joining into the social memory that we all share. Our table is open. If you'd like to observe rather than partake, that's okay. And if you'd like to receive prayer, there'll be a member of the prayer team here under the cross willing to pray with you this morning. But however the Spirit may be speaking to you right now, let me encourage you to respond with boldness. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.